Hello, welcome to The Wire Podcast, a podcast that provides the best content about all things sports. I'm Ryan McCreary, and on today's episode, I'm going to start by recapping all of the NFL playoff games from the divisional round. We had a lot of great games this past weekend. I'm going to talk about all of those. And once I'm done talking about the divisional round, I want to talk about the NBA MVP race. I'm going to talk about the top candidates, three candidates, specifically Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I want to talk about those guys and their case to win the NBA MVP this year. That's what we have on tap for today. Today's episode. I hope you're excited. I know I am. And let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, let's get the show on the road by recapping the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. This past weekend, we had four games. I'm going to recap every single one. Let's go ahead and get started with Texans versus Ravens. So this was a very strong performance from the Ravens. They won 34-10 to at home, but it wasn't always a blowout. The first half was pretty close, and I'm going to go ahead and go through the, the game tracker. We're going to go through the play-by-play and see how this game played out. So in the first quarter, the Texans started the game off with the ball. They punted. Then the Ravens responded with a field goal to go up 3 to nothing. Then both teams traded punts before the Texans kicked a field goal of their own to make the score 3 to 3. And then before the first quarter ended, the Ravens scored a touchdown to go up 10 to 3. Then in the second quarter, the Texans punted, then the Ravens punted, then the Ravens punted again. Actually, Sorry, excuse me, let me go back. The Ravens punted, and the Texans returned it for a touchdown. Uh, Steven, uh, Steven Sims scored a punt return touchdown to make the score 10-10. to Then the Ravens punted, and then the Texans, they kicked the field goal to go up 13-10, but they missed it, and so the score remained 10-10. to Then the Ravens punted, and then the Texans had one more possession. They ran the clock out, and that was the end of the first half. The score was 10-10 at halftime. The first half was very, very close, largely due to the punt return touchdown. It was a very close game. Neither team was dominating the game at this point, but the second half was much, much different. The third quarter got started with the Ravens' touchdown. They went up 17-10. Then the Texans punted, and then the Ravens scored another touchdown to go up 24-10. So they scored two touchdowns in the third quarter, and that made the score 24-10, gave them a 14-point lead. And then in the fourth quarter, the Texans started with a punt. Then the Ravens scored another touchdown to go up 31-10. Then the Texans had a turnover on downs. Then the Ravens kicked the field goal to go up 34-10, and that was basically the end of the game. They scored 24 unanswered points in the second half, the Ravens did, to win by 24 points at home. Big win for them. The Ravens were really good in this game. I know the first half was close, but they dominated in the second half. Uh, They were really good in this game, and their defense was awesome. Uh, Their defense was amazing. They limited the Texans to just 4.5 yards per play. They also held them to just 4 of 12 on third downs alone, which is really good. Um, And they allowed a success rate of just 31%. Mike McDonald, their DC, he was absolutely cooking in this game. He was great. And for the Texans, I wanted to talk about their offense a little bit. CJ Stroud was okay. Um, I know his numbers weren't great. The box score wasn't gaudy, but um, he didn't have a sack or a turnover, and he was under pressure all game long. And so the fact that he didn't have a sack or a turnover despite that, um, I thought was impressive. I thought he handled pressure okay, especially in terms of limiting sacks in those uh, situations. And he had some nice throws in the first half. Obviously, the second half was not that great for them, uh, but I thought Stroud performed okay in this game considering that he was going up against a historically good defense. And for the Ravens, they were really good offensively. Lamar Jackson, he was electric. He had four total touchdowns, 100 rushing yards, completed 16 of 22 passes, and averaged 0.36 EPA per dropback. He was really good. I know his passing numbers were all that impressive if you just look at the box score, but trust me, I watched the game. He was great, made some big throws, was awesome as a runner, and was really, really efficient. He was great, and this was the second playoff win of his career. And he has largely struggled in the postseason um, through the beginning of his career. And so to see him play so well today or this weekend was awesome. 
it was great, and, and I'm happy for him. I'm happy to see him win his second playoff game of his career. And now the Ravens are, are in the AFC Championship. And this will be Lamar's first AFC Championship appearance of his career. That's awesome. It's great to see him uh, make it to his first AFC Championship. So that's awesome. They're going to be facing the Chiefs. Um, and we'll talk about the Chiefs game uh, later on. Uh, but shout out to the Ravens. And shout out to the Texans for exceeding expectations this year. They had a great season. They were really, really good this year. Um, and to see them exceed expectations was awesome. They've got a bright future. They've got a star quarterback in CJ Stroud. Uh, they played played really well in the, in the playoffs. I know this game didn't go the way they expected. But they played well in the first half. Um, and I think that they have a lot to look forward to in the future. Shout out to them. But yeah, the Ravens got a big win here, winning 34-10 to 10 at home to move on to the AFC Championship. Alright, let's go ahead and move on talk about the Packers 49ers game. This was a wild game. Really, really fascinating. Uh, 49ers won 24-21, to 21, won by three points at home. And this was a bit of an up and down game for both teams, uh, especially both teams offense specifically. Let's go ahead and look at the play-by-play. So, let's go ahead and get over here. In the first quarter, the Packers got started with a field goal to go up 3 to nothing. Then the 49ers punted. Then the Packers had a turnover on downs. And then, we, then uh, so after the first quarter, the Packers were up 3 to nothing. In the second quarter, the 49ers scored a touchdown to go up 7 to 3. Then the Packers kicked a field goal to make it 7 to 6. And then the 49ers had a missed field goal. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um, this was a very interesting sequence here. So, the uh, 49ers had the ball right before the first half. They were driving. They had the ball with um, with a second and five at the Green Bay 46. There was a minute and 19 left on the clock. They ran the ball up the middle with Christian McCaffrey. And they let, like, 50 seconds run off the clock, which was insane. It was very conservative. And it wasn't like they were already in field goal range. They were at the Green Bay 46. And with the run, they were at the Green Bay 43. And I'm not sure why Kyle Shanahan was okay letting all this time run off the clock. But he was for some reason. And so they had a 32 at the Green Bay 43 with 34 seconds left. They completed the pass, got the first down. Then they were at the Green Bay 38. Um, and, and so they completed a short pass. I think I already said that. And then they had a second and two. Then they had a third and two. And eventually they had a fourth and two. Kicked the field goal. They missed it. It was just very conservative coaching and game management from Kyle Shanahan. Which, you know, we're used to at this point. He is pretty conservative despite being one of the better play callers in the league, and despite having a lot of talent on offense, you would expect him to be really aggressive in situations like this, but he's not, and it came back to bite him as they missed the field goal, and that was the end of the first half. The, 49, the 49ers were up 7-6 to six at halftime. Um, it was a very close game in the first half. Then we move on to the, to the third quarter. The 49ers started the second half with a punt. Then the Packers scored a touchdown to go up 13-7. to seven. Then the 49ers responded with a touchdown to go up 14-13. to 13. And then the Packers res- responded with a touchdown of their own to go up 21-14. to 14. There were three, th- three straight possessions here where, uh, where there was a touchdown. The Packers were now up by seven. And then the 49ers had the punt. And this was a crazy situation. At this point, the Packers had full control of the game. They were up seven. Um, If things went their way, and if they uh, uh, handled business and executed on offense, they could have gone up by double digits. Unfortunately, they threw an interception, and then the 49ers were able to kick a field goal to go up 21-17. And despite the fact that the 49ers kicked a field goal, the Packers were still in a great position. They were heading into the fourth quarter, up four points, up 21-17. They ended up punting at the beginning of the fourth quarter. The 49ers punted as well. Then the Packers drove down the field, missed a field goal, so it was still 21-17. to And then the 49ers 
finally put together a good drive, going up 20, uh, sorry, go, scoring a touchdown to go up 24 to 21. And then the Packers threw an interception at the end of the game. It was a really bad interception from Jordan Love, following up a really nice final drive from Brock Purdy. Um, but the, the the interception from the Packers on the final drive, it was a bad decision uh, by Jordan Love. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he saw. Um, I think it was just a really bad a really, really bad decision from him. He throws the ball up into like triple coverage. The 49ers pick him off and they win the game 24 to 21. Really good game. I was really surprised by how by, by how well the Packers played. They were really good. And the 49ers are a great team. They were big favorites in, in this game. Yet the Packers were in it until the end. It was a great game. I really enjoyed it. Sorry, I had to get a drink real quick. But yeah, shout out to the Packers. They played really well in this game. Kept it close. Um, I did want to talk about Brock Purdy in this game. Man, he was terrible. Um, I'm not going to bash him too much, but he was pretty bad for 99% of the game. He had a, a great final drive where he made some nice throws, had a nice scramble in the red zone. But for most of the game, he was really bad. He was struggling with accuracy. He had some really bad decisions, some some throws where he, where he should have been intercepted, um, but he got lucky there, um, and that made his box score look a little bit better. But overall, he was not very good. Um, he's got to be better moving forward. The, the 49ers are not going to win a Super Bowl if he continues to play like this, but I don't expect him to. I think this was like an outlier. I don't expect him to play this way. It was rainy. Um, he does have smaller hands, and it seemed like that was affecting his ability to throw the ball accurately. Um, but he's been really good this year, um, and <laughs> he has not been playing like this. This is not a not a normal performance from him, especially in terms of accuracy. The accuracy was a huge issue in this game with the weather. Uh, but I did, I did have to point out that he was not good in this game. And I, and I saw a lot of tweets from... 49ers fans and 49ers reporters and 49ers writers talking about how great the final possession was, how great the final drive was. There was a guy, um, I think his name was David Lombardi, um, who covers the 49ers for the Athletic. He compared Purdy on that final drive to Joe Montana. And listen, that's all cool, but like, we got to be honest here. He was not very good in this game. Had some nice throws at the end of the game, and he did come through in the end. But a big reason why the game was so close in the end, and the reason why they were down in the end, had a, a lot to do with the way that Brock Purdy was performing in the first three quarters. And so, I don't want to give him too much credit for him digging the 49ers out of a hole that he dug. Um, and uh, we saw the uh, we saw uh, we see like fans and, and, and like football fans do this a lot where they'll give quarterbacks credit for coming through in the end of a game where they were the big the biggest reason why their team was struggling so much. Like we, I saw this with the Falcons uh, a lot this year. I'm a Falcons fan, and Falcons fans would do this with Desmond Ritter. Desmond Ritter had a lot of fourth-quarter comebacks this year and and a lot of game-winning drives, and he deserves credit for that and performing well on those drives, but he also deserves criticism for, you know, digging the hole in the first place and for playing so poorly that the team is struggling and is behind late in the game. Um, and I think we saw a situation like that here with Brock Purdy in the 49ers. I don't want to um, pile on him too much uh, because he did make some big plays at the end of the game and he deserves credit for that. Uh, but I, I didn't want people to lose sight of the fact that he did struggle um, and that the 49ers were lucky to win this game with how, how poorly Brock Purdy played through the first three quarters um, and how lucky he got on a few passes that honestly should have been intercepted. Uh, but they were able to come through. Christian McCaffrey had some big moments. Um, their defense came up with some big plays, uh, recorded two interceptions. That was huge. I thought Jordan Love was better than Brock Purdy in this game, but he had some bad moments. I think the interception that he threw the first interception was picked, was like tipped, if I remember correctly. Um, but the second interception was his fault, and it was a terrible play. I don't know what he was doing. Um, but overall, both quarterbacks had their ups and downs. Um, but the 49ers were able to win this game. They, they won by three points, and they are moving on to the NFC Championship. And they will face 
the Detroit Lions, who we are going to talk about next. We got to talk about the Buccaneers versus Lions. This was a fun game here. Lions won 31-23. Let's go through the play-by-play real quick, um, because this was a back-and-forth game that came down to the wire. So let's go through the play-by-play. In the first quarter, the Lions got the ball first, and they punted, and then the Buccaneers, they threw an interception that was tipped, and um, they made sure, the offense made sure uh, to pay back the defense by kicking a field goal to go up 3-0 early. Then the Buccaneers responded with a field goal to tie the game at 3-3, and then before the first quarter ended, the Lions scored a touchdown to go up 10-3. In the second quarter, the Buccaneers got started with a punt, then the Lions punted. Then the Buccaneers missed a field goal. This was a very interesting situation that I wanted to talk about. Uh, right here, the Buccaneers were down 10-3. to And they had a 4th and 5 at the Detroit 32. They kicked a field goal. It was a 50-yard field goal attempt. I thought the Buccaneers should have went for it. Um, I did not like the decision to kick a field goal here, and I think they had another situation earlier in this game where they punted that I didn't like. Maybe that happened later in this game. I don't remember. There were a few plays where Todd, Bo- uh, Todd Bowles was really conservative for the Buccaneers, um, and, and I didn't like some of his decisions. This field goal attempt, I thought they should have uh, went for it. They were down seven against a, a superior opponent on the road. They're the underdog. I thought this was a play where they needed to go for it. And and here, there was two and a half minutes left in the first half. I thought they should have been aggressive. And this uh, being conservative really bit them in the butt here. They missed the field goal. The Lions punted. The Buccaneers did eventually score a touchdown to tie the game 10-10 right before the half. Um, and that was basically all the action for the first half. The score was tied 10-10 at halftime. Um, I thought the Buccaneers were really lucky to be tied at the half. Uh, considering they threw an interception early and they missed a field goal. But the game, the score was tied at 10 and 10 at halftime, which was good for the Bucks. In the third quarter, the Bucks got started with a punt. Then the Lions punted. Then the Buccaneers punted again. Then the Lions finally scored a touchdown to go up 17 and 10. Then the Buccaneers responded with a touchdown to tie the score 17 to 17. And then the Lions scored a touchdown to go ahead 24 to 17 right before the end of the third quarter. And then we go into the fourth quarter. The Buccaneers got started with a punt. Then the Lions scored a touchdown to go up 31 to 17. They were in full control of the game here, up double digits, up two scores. Then the Buccaneers scored a touchdown to go up 31 to 23. Then the Lions punted. Then the Buccaneers down eight points at the end of the game. Baker Mayfield threw a bad interception, and that ended the game, and that uh, secured a 31 to 23 victory for the Lions. This was a fun game. The Lions end up winning to go to um, to the uh, the NFC Championship, almost at AFC Championship. With this win, the Lions are headed to the NFC Championship to face the 49ers. A big moment here for this team, for that city. So shout out to them. Um, the Lions was well, the Lions offense, excuse me, was really good in this game. They averaged about 0.17 EPA per play and had a success rate of 55%. Um, They had a ton of success on the ground specifically. Um, They averaged about 0.21 EPA per play um, per rush and had a 62% 62 success rate on runs. Um, They were running the ball at will in this game, and they were really good on early downs. Their defense was also really good. Um, they, They had some big moments. They had two interceptions and four sacks, which is great. They wrecked a lot of havoc in this game. Uh, The Buccaneers' passing attack was efficient in terms of yards per pass attempt, but when you look at advanced numbers like EPA per play and success rate, they actually weren't that great and weren't all that efficient, and I think a big reason why is due to the interceptions and the sacks and the fact that they were facing a lot of third and longs in this game. I want to go back to the Lions here. Uh, Amon Ross St. Brown, Jameer Gibbs, and Sam LaPorta were all really, really good. They were all great in this game. Um, And the Buccaneers... Uh, They were solid in this game, but a lot of things really hurt them, like the interceptions and the sacks. Um, 
but they were able to run the ball effectively. Um, unfortunately, they had to throw a ball, they had to throw the ball a lot in this game because they were down, especially in the second half. They were down by double digits in the fourth quarter, so they were throwing the ball a lot, and they couldn't rely on their run game as much as they probably wanted to, and that really hurt them. Um, I also something I talked about earlier: conservative decision making that hurt them a lot. One thing I had to talk about. Um, that a lot of people were talking about on, on social media was uh, Todd Bowles' decision to go for two down eight on their first touchdown at the end of the game, the touchdown that made it a, an eight-point game that made it 31-23. to 23. After scoring that touchdown, they went for two to make it a six-point game, and a lot of people hated that decision. And this is a very new analytical idea uh, to go for two down eight. The reason why teams are starting to do this and a lot of, and the reason why um, a lot of ana- analytics departments are recommending that the coaches do this is because in this situation, the odds are against the Buccaneers heavily. I looked at the, at the numbers. According to ESPN, um, when, the 40, or when the Buccaneers scored this touchdown, I think right before, they had a 3.9% chance to win the game. Um, and then after the touchdown, it really didn't go up all that much. And so they're down double digits. They score a touchdown. Um, they're down eight points. The odds of them winning the game are not in their favor, and it's not even close. Like, they, their odds of winning the game are already small because they have to get a stop, which is hard because the Lions' offense is really good. Then they have to go down and score, um, and, and they have to do that no matter what they do, whether they kick an extra point or uh, go for two. And so the odds of them tying the game, winning the game, is so small. And so to maximize their chances of winning, they should go for two. Because even if they don't get it, they're still down eight points. They can get a stop. They can go down the field and go for two again. And they would be expected to get one of those two-point conversions. Obviously, they could fail twice. and That's a possibility. But they would be expected to convert one of those two-point conversions and at least play for overtime if things go their way. But if they do uh, go for two and get it, it's a six-point game. If they get a stop and score a touchdown, they can kick an extra point to win the game in regulation. And then by going for two, it's a six-point game. If they don't get a stop when the Lions kick a field goal, it's still a nine-point game. They can get a touchdown. Uh, if they score a touchdown, they can potentially kick an onside kick and then tie the game in regulation. Going for two gives them a lot more possibilities to tie the game. Um, it also gives them the ability to win the game in regulation. And with the odds not being in their favor at all, I think it does make sense for them to go for two in that situation to maximize their chances of winning in regulation. And you don't want to go to overtime Honestly, um, I know that both teams get possession now in overtime, but still, you don't want to go go to overtime as the underdog. You want to win in regulation, and the best chance to do that in this situation was to go for two down eight. Um, I know that a lot of people don't like that. They feel like you should kick the extra point, and then if you want to go for two, go for two on the second touchdown. But I promise you, in that situation, like to, to give yourself the most time, to take advantage with the time that you have, and to maximize your chances of winning, the best decision is to go for two down eight. If you fail there, you know what you have to do. You've got to go down and get it. You've got to get a stop, score a touchdown, get a two-point conversion. Um, and then if you get the two-point conversion, you know that you can win the game in regulation. Or you know that if you um, went down nine points, you have to score a touchdown, get an onside kick, and kick a field goal. It's very complicated. I know, like I'm, I may not be sounding, I may not be making a lot of sense here. Uh, you can probably look look this stuff up and hear better explanations for why going going for two down eight makes a lot of sense. But it does. It's very analytical thinking, and so a lot of people don't like that. But um, I think this is a very smart decision from Todd Bowles, and I'm surprised that he did that with how conservative he was being um, early earlier in the game. But eventually it didn't matter because they threw an interception on the drive where they could have tied the game. So it didn't end up mattering. But um, I felt like I had to talk about that since this was such a huge thing that people were talking about on social media. All right. Now let's talk about Chiefs versus Bills. Awesome game. 
was the best matchup uh, of the weekend. I was so excited for this game because we've seen this matchup play out so many times over the years, and we got another good one. The Chiefs ended up winning 27-24 on the road. It was a wild game. Very fascinating game uh, in terms of how each team played um, and, and how each team was running their offense. I'm, I'm going to go through the play-by-play, and then we will get into the nitty-gritty with all the football nerd stuff. All right, let's go through the play-by-play. So in the first quarter, things got started. Uh, the Bills kicked a field goal early to go up 3 to nothing. Then the Chiefs responded with a field goal to make it 3-3. Three to three. And then the Bills scored a touchdown to go up 10-3 to three, uh, after the first quarter. In the second quarter, the Chiefs got started with a field goal to make the score 10 to 6. Then the Bills punted. Then the Chiefs scored another touchdown to go up 13 to 10. Then the Bills responded with a touchdown to go up 17 to 13, and they would take their 17 to 13 lead into into the half. Um, in the third quarter, the Chiefs got started with a touchdown to go up 20 to 17. Then the Bills scored a touchdown to go up 24 to 20. And then the Chiefs scored a, uh, scored a touchdown to go up 27-24. Then we head into the fourth quarter. At the beginning of the fourth quarter, the Bills had a turnover on downs. The Chiefs had a fumble that went into the end zone. It was crazy. They were like in the red zone. And so this was a, a huge moment. Uh, the Bills got the ball back. And they were down 27-24 at this point. They ended up punting. The Chiefs punted the ball back. They drove down the field. The Bills, I'm talking about here. They drove down the field. Had a field goal. They missed it wide to the right. That ended the, ended the game and secured a 27-24 victory for the Chiefs. It was crazy. Wild game here. Went down to the wire. Um, it was back and forth um, all, all game long. And the Chiefs end up winning. They do it again. They're back in the AFC Championship. And they will be facing the Baltimore Ravens. Um, this was a really interesting game, specifically because of the way that the Bills were running their offense. So, in the first half, the Bills were super run-heavy, like, and they were having a lot of success. Um, I sent a tweet about this last night. Um, the Bills' run game was super effective in the first half, especially on early downs. They were running a lot on early downs, and that being first and second down, and they were having a lot of success, and the Chiefs couldn't stop it. Um, and so, th- I thought that was very interesting. They went super run-heavy. They weren't throwing the ball down the field a lot. Um, their their average depth of target in this game was 5.8, so they were not throwing the ball down the field at all. Um, they were trying to to establish the run, as they say, um, and they were throwing a lot of short passes. Um, and they were really effective in the first half, not quite as effective in the second half as they began throwing the ball more and as they began having to rely on the pass game um, more than the run game. I do want to talk about the Chiefs a lot. Uh, Patrick Mahomes was awesome in this game, and he was extremely efficient. He averaged 9.3 yards per pass attempt, had zero interceptions or sacks, which is huge, and he averaged 0.57 EPA per play on dropbacks. Um, Also had a completion percentage over expectation of 18 0.2%, which is incredible, um, had a QBR of 91.2. He was awesome, super efficient, and the numbers were off the charts all across the board. His connection with Travis Kelsey was super effective in this game. Travis Kelsey had a big game, and even Marquez Valdez-Scantling made some big catches. So shout out to MVS. Uh, the Chiefs were also great at running the ball in this game. Pacheco, Isaiah Pacheco had 97 yards and a touchdown on 15 carries. Um, they also averaged 0.13 EPA per play on runs and had a 50% success rate on run plays. Surprisingly, the Chiefs were not good on late downs. Like third and fourth downs, they were not very efficient on these downs. Though, though they were amazing on early downs, whether they were running or throwing. So their effectiveness on early downs was huge in this game. Their defense was also amazing in the second half. They held the Bills to just seven points after the first two quarters, which is huge. Um, And despite losing, the Bills played well, especially on offense. They averaged about 0.14 EPA per play and had a success rate of 58%. I talked about earlier, they had a run-heavy approach to this game, and they were really effective running the ball, but they were also effective throwing the ball. Uh, Josh Allen, the numbers weren't gaudy, but he had a solid game, averaged about 0.27 EPA per play on dropbacks. 
um, also had a 56% success rate on dropbacks. Uh, like I mentioned, didn't have gaudy numbers. If you look at the box score, you may not be super impressed, but he didn't throw a pick. He didn't take a sack. Has some big throws in this game. He also was really good as a runner. He had 12 carries for 72 yards and two touchdowns, so he had a really good game, in my opinion. I thought he looked really good. Um, he didn't throw the ball down the field all that often, but he did have some big throws down the field that weren't caught. One to Stephon Diggs, one to another receiver whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, also, on the final drive, there was a, a, a big sequence here where the Bills... They were in the, I think they were in the red zone. They may not have been in the red zone at this point, but they were driving, and this was right before they kicked the field goal that they ended up missing at the end of the game. They had like a second and nine where Stephon Diggs was open on like a crosser, on a crosser route. Um, Josh Allen ended up not throwing the ball to him. He went after a post, which was open in the end zone, but he missed the throw. A big reason why I think he missed the throw is because Chris Jones was able to push back the left tackle, and he pushed him into Josh Allen, which affected the throw. The throw ended up being complete. A lot of people were criticizing Josh Allen for that decision on social media, on Twitter. I didn't think it was a bad decision. I thought it was a good, de a good decision. It was a post route versus uh, a coverage where the middle of the field was open. He had the throw. He probably needed to step up within the pocket to avoid the pass rush um, and then to make the throw. But I thought the decision was great. You, ne you needed to get a touchdown there. You're down three. A touchdown could potentially win the game. So I liked the aggressive decision there. And I thought it was the right decision. The execution just wasn't there. And then on the next play, they threw the ball into the end zone. It was incomplete. And that's what led to the field goal attempt. I thought the decision making was good there by Josh Allen. Um, I thought he should have, you know, moved up in the pocket on that second and nine play where he threw the post route. But other than that, I didn't think the decision making was bad from him. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Stephon Diggs, who has quietly been really bad recently, and I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. He was a no-show in this game. He had a big drop down the field where Josh Allen just unloaded a, a crazy deep ball, but he dropped it, um, and he has been really unproductive the last couple of games. Um, I don't know what's been up with him. I don't know if he's hurt. I don't know if it's just, you know, he's, he, he's having a bad stretch, but he's been really bad, um, and it's come at a really bad time. They need him to play well. They needed him to play well in this game, and they needed him to play well in the playoffs if they wanted to win a Super Bowl, so I thought that was something worth noting. Uh, when this loss brings a big question, what's next for the Bills? And do they fire Sean McDermott? I think they should fire Sean McDermott. I think, you know, this is like five years in a row, I think, maybe six years in a row, in which they have not made it past the AFC Championship. This is many years in a row in which they haven't made it past the, the divisional round. And now they're going to face some difficulties when it, com when it comes to their cap room. I think right now they need to make a change with their head coach. It's just been too many, too many years in a row in which they've fallen short in the playoffs. I think they have to make a change. I think they have to fire Sean McDermott. Will they? I'm not sure. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they do, though, and I think it would be the right decision. I think they have to make a, a change with their head coach. And I know that now, with, them, with the Bills losing um, early in the playoffs again, the narratives surrounding Josh Allen are going to be nasty. They're going to be insane. But I'm telling you, if you watch Josh Allen, I'm not sure how you can't see that he is amazing. I mean, I watch a lot of Josh Allen, and it's very clear to me that he is, like, on a different level from most quarterbacks. He's an all-time great talent, and he's been performing at that level for a while. He's a great quarterback. He's been great in the playoffs, like, for his entire career. The Bills' playoff failures are not because of Josh Allen. They have nothing to do with him. He's been awesome in the playoffs. He's been great. I think last year, he had some struggles in the playoffs, but largely, he's been amazing in the postseason. So I, 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 I'm, it's going to suck when people start to blame him for the Bills' playoff struggles. It's not him. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's a freak. Um, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I think he's clearly the second best quarterback in the league behind Patrick Mahomes. He's been that guy for a while, and so I don't want to see people blame him. 
I think there are other issues that are bigger problems um, and have been bigger problems in the playoffs than Josh Allen. So had to get off a little rant there about Josh Allen. But yeah, I'm really interested to see what the front office does with the roster and with their head coach moving forward. Maybe they, maybe they move on from Sean McDermott after the season. We'll see, but they got some big questions to answer. Um, but yeah, shout out to the Chiefs for winning this game. Big win. I don't know how they keep on doing it. This is the worst team they've had in the Mahomes era, and they still make it to the AFC Championship. It doesn't make any sense. Patrick Mahomes is, he's just one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and I don't need to see more of it. He's freaking ridiculous. The fact that he drug this offense to the AFC Championship is incredible. I know the Chiefs have a really good defense, and I've given credit to their defense. Their defense is, is really good, but the offense is not that talented, and they still are able to perform really well in the playoffs. It doesn't make sense. Patrick Mahomes is a different breed, and... They're, they're in the AFC Championship. They're playing for a Super Bowl, and I can't believe it. It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, shout out to the Chiefs. I can't wait to see that Chiefs-Ravens game. That's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be an awesome matchup, and I can't wait to see it. All right, now I'm going to talk about the NBA MVP race, talk about some of the candidates and their case to win the award. Before I get into that, I'm going to take a break, and I will be right back in just a second. Okay, let's close out this episode by talking about the NBA MVP race, and I want to talk about three candidates specifically um, and what their case is to win the MVP award. I'll also mention some other guys who also have a case, but I really want to go in depth on three guys who are like the bet the three betting favorites to win the award, and that is Joel Embiid. Nikola Jokic, and Shane Gilgis Alexander. Let's go ahead and get started by talking about Joel Embiid. And before I get into Joel Embiid's case, I just want to say, this dude is freaking ridiculous, man. I was looking through the numbers, and like, I was getting giddy. Like, literally, the dude is playing at such a high level right now. Let's go ahead and get into the numbers. So right now, Joella Embiid is averaging around 35 points, 11 rebounds, and 6 assists per game on 65% true shooting. That's nuts. Like, those numbers are ridiculous. 35 points per game? Well, also, like, that alone is ridiculous, especially, especially considering he's doing that on such high efficiency. That's nuts. I haven't looked at the numbers in terms of how good this you know, combination of scoring volume and scoring efficiency is all time, but it's got to be great. I know, I know it has to be like one of the greatest all time scoring seasons we've, we've ever seen. I mean, those numbers are off the charts good. Um, he's been really incredible as a scorer at the rim and from mid range. Um, he's also, I believe off the top of my head, he's been solid as a three point shooter, especially for a big man. But I, I was looking at the numbers and I was like, oh my gosh, he has been insanely effective uh, scoring at the rim and from mid range. That's a big reason why he's been so efficient. He's also generating free throws at an insane rate. Like it is ridiculous how often he's getting to the free throw line. I know people are going to complain. I know people have already complained a lot about his antics in terms of, you know, baiting defenders into fouling him. But um, I think that this is part of the reason why he's such a dominant scorer. Like he, he gets free throws and I don't think this is a Joel Embiid problem. This is a referee problem. And I think if we're going to cr criticize anybody, you should criticize NBA refs. They're the problem here. Not too well, Embiid. Embiid is just taking advantage of them like he should. And that's uh, his his ability to get to the free throw line is a huge reason why he's averaging 35 on just out-of-this-world efficiency. Another thing I've loved from Embiid is his defense. His defense, and he's been a good defender before, but his defense has reached a whole other level. He's been incredible on that end of the floor. He's got a, a block rate of 4.9%. His defensive estimated plus minus is at plus 3.5 right now, which is tied for third in the entire league. And that gets better if you adjust for how many minutes he's playing. Among players who are playing like 30 minutes per game, I think he is tied for first in this metric, maybe second. Um, I'll have to look, but yeah, his defensive impact metrics 
are great. They're really good. And it makes sense because not only is he blocking a ton of shots, the 76ers defense is 4.1 points better per 100 possessions when he's on the floor. So he's having a huge impact defensively. He's blocking a ton of shots. He's been great on defense. He's also taken a step up as a passer. His assist rate is a career best, 32.3%, which is insane for a center. That's really good. And he has a low turnover rate. His turnover rate is just 12.1%, which is ridiculous considering his usage. I think right now he is leading the league in usage rate at like 38%. So the fact that he is this good as a passer and he's this good limiting turnovers with, with that usage is kind of crazy. Um, and when you look at his impact metrics, they're awesome. His box plus minus is 12.4, um, which is at an all-time great level, and his estimated plus-minus is 10.3, which is also at, like, an all-time great level. Um, he is playing, like, the best player in the world right now, like, and I, I'm very comfortable saying that. This production is unreal, and this is, like, best player in the world kind of production, and then if you care about, you know, the team record and team production, his team is great. They're 28 and 13 right now. They're third in simple rating system, which is, you know, opponent-adjusted scoring margin. Um, and they're also top 10 in both offensive rating and defensive rating. Now, the and, and that's great. So if you care about team accomplishments, he's got that. He's also got the individual production. There's not a lot that you can say um, against Embiid right now. Um, now, I will say I don't care about the team records. I do care to some degree how well his team is performing, and they're performing great. They're, they're awesome. So um, he pretty much has everything. The one thing that hurts Embiid is the fact that he has missed a lot of games. He has played right now, I think. Let me actually look it up. I think he's played 31 games right now. Let's see. Let me look this up. Um, and this is a problem because he's played around like, 10 less games than all the other MVP candidates, and so that's, uh, that's something that you could, that you could hold against Joel Embiid, I don't know if I would, I'm still, I was thinking about that this morning, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how much that matters, because when you just look at the way that he's playing, he is playing like the MVP, like his MVP case is very clear and obvious, but, uh, when you consider total value, like how, how much total value has he provided this season? The fact that he hasn't played um, as many games as he could does hurt him. And I pulled up his numbers. He has played 31 games this year. Um, and that's about, like I said, that's like 10 fewer games than the other MVP candidates. And if you care about metrics like value over, repl over replacement player um, or estimated wins, those are two plus minus metrics that are cumulative, not rate stats. So they incorporate uh, minute, I think it's like either minutes or possessions or games played is a volume stat. It's, it, they're, they're kind of like wins above replacement. And because Embiid has only played 31 games, he is lower in those metrics um, than, than rate stats like box plus minus and estimated plus minus. So I think that um, his games played does matter to what extent. I'm not sure. It would depend on uh, each individual person and each individual MVP voter, but it's something I would consider. Uh, but I will I will say that I think Joel Embiid um, is very deserving of the MVP award, and he has been playing like the best player. So uh, I think that that would matter more than how many games he has missed. That's just my opinion. All right, let's move on to Nikola Jokic. So right now, Nikola Jokic is averaging around 26 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists per game on 65.7% true shooting. He is having another ridiculous season. Those numbers are awesome. Really good. Like Embiid, he has been unbelievable as a scorer um, at the rim and from mid-range. He's also been unreal as a passer. He has an assist rate of 43.7% compared to a turnover rate of just 12.7%. And the Nuggets offense, excuse me, the Nuggets offense is so much better when he's on the floor. When he is on the floor, the Nuggets offense is 16.2 points uh, better per 100 possessions than when he is off the floor. That's crazy. And I know that the Nuggets bench hasn't always been that great, but still, 
That is really good. That offensive impact is awesome. Let me get a drink real quick. Right now, he is performing like the best offensive player in the league. Like, clearly. Um, his numbers across the board offensively are so good. I think, like, all, obviously, Tyrese Halliburton has a case there. Luka Doncic has a case there. Um, but, man, he is playing so, so well offensively right now. And I do think he's been better offensively than Joel Embiid. And so I think that that is something that is in Jokic's favor when you're talking about the MVP discussion. Something that is important to talk about is Jokic's defense. His defense has taken a step back. I think in years past, he has been around average to slightly above average defensively. Um, and at times, he's been like a, a good defender. But right now, he is not. he's not playing that well on defense. His um, defensive estimated plus minus is negative 0.9, which is below league average and like pretty easily below league average. So that hurts him a lot. And that's why his impact metrics, when you look at estimated plus minus, is a little bit lower. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, now, his team has been great. And, and people, uh, when, when MVP voters talk about the MVP race, they love to bring up team accomplishments and team records. The Nuggets have been great this year. They are 30 and 14, which I think is the third best record in the league at the moment. They're sixth in SRS, simple rating system. And they are top 10 in offensive rating. They are slightly outside the top 10 in defensive rating, but their offense has been really good. And Jokic's uh, impact metrics are great, but they are a little bit mixed. His box plus minus is 14.2. This is a little bit inflated because box plus minus is not the be- doesn't measure defense the best. Um, and he is, I think, number one and defensive box plus minus, which obviously is not an accurate representation of how well he's playing on defense. Um, Estimated plus minus is a lot better than box plus minus at measuring defense, and in this metric, he he has an EPM of just 7.2, which is still really good. I know I said just 7.2. I say that because that's a lot lower than his box plus minus. It's still really good. I think that mark is top five for EPM, but it's not like a historical, a historically great mark, and it doesn't lead the league. And I would, I care more about EPM than box plus minus. Um, and so I think Jokic has been playing at an MVP level, um, but I'm not sure he's been better than Joel Embiid. And I would probably prefer Joel Embiid if I were voting for the MVP. But Jokic has played more games, and he does rank better in um, in these like war type metrics. So if you care about that a lot, maybe you would go with Jokic. But for me, I think I would lean towards Joel Embiid. And I say that as someone who is a very vocal Nikola Jokic supporter. And so hopefully that shows that I try not to be biased and I try to be objective. Right now, I I think Joel Embiid is having a better season than Nikola Jokic. All right, let's move on and talk about Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who is just such a fascinating player. I love him. He's awesome. Fun player. Right now, he is averaging around 31 points, 6 rebounds, and 6 assists per game on 64.8% true shooting. Really good numbers across the board there. Super efficient, um, and he's having a great all-around season. He's been a ridiculous rim finisher. He's almost at 70% shooting um, at the rim, which is nuts. And I think his uh, field goal percentage at the rim is higher than Jokic and Embiid, which is nuts to think about. He's also been extremely effective as a mid-range shooter, um, which is great. And that's the same with like Jokic and Embiid. All three of these players are really good at scoring inside the three-point line. He's also been, uh, no, sorry, he hasn't been that good of a three-point shooter, but that's fine. You don't have to be. He's still scoring at a high volume on really, really good efficiency, so I don't think that's a problem, but that is something that um, he doesn't do all that well. He has been a good passer. Yeah, he has an assist rate of 29.8% versus a turnover rate of 7.7%. That turnover rate is incredible. That's insanely low, Um, and I think, although he's not, you know, generating assist at a super high rate. It's a good assist rate, just not elite. I think the fact that he limits turnovers at this rate makes up for that, and his efficiency in that department is unreal. Now, something that I love about SGA is the fact that he is awesome on defense. 
right now, he's having an incredible defensive season for a guard. Um, he has a steal rate of 3.1% and a block rate of 2.1%. Those numbers are awesome. He also has a defensive estimated plus minus of plus 2.5, which is really, really good. He is playing so well on both ends of the floor, and that's a big reason why he is having an MVP caliber season. Um, and I looked at the Thunder's offense and how it performs when he is off the floor versus when he's on the floor. The Thunder's offense is 10.2 points better when S uh, per 100 possessions when SGA is on the floor versus when he's off the floor, which is great. So he's been super impactful on offense. And the Thunder, they're having an amazing season largely because of SGA. And it's not just because of SGA. They have, you know, he has a great supporting cast with Chet Holmgren and Jalen Williams. But the fact that he is playing at an MVP level is a big reason why the team is performing so well. Um, right now, the Thunder are 29-13. and 13. They are second in SRS, and they are top 10 in offensive rating and defensive rating. And something that, that I want to point out is that SGA ranks first in Duncan 3's estimated wins metric. I talked about this earlier. This is a metric that operates like war, and it's based off of, of their plus-minus metric. It's cumulative. It's not a rate stat. And so it looks at the total value that SGA is providing, um, and he ranks first in this metric. And so I think that um, you can also use that as a big part of his MVP case. Um, among these three players, who would I vote for the MVP? Um, I would vote for Joel Embiid. I think he's been the best. Um, I think I would vote SGA second and then have Nikola Jokic third. But these, all three of these guys are playing at an MVP level, and they all three have very strong MVP cases. But I would prefer Joel Embiid over SGA because I think Embiid's defense is more, more valuable because he is such a good rim protector and he's a center. I also value his passing um, strongly. I think SGA has been amazing on both ends of the floor as well. Um, but I think his non-elite passing and lack of a three-point shot does hurt him a little bit. Keeps him from being as, a, as efficient as it could be as a scorer. Um, like if he were a great three-point shooter, I think his scoring efficiency could be even higher, which is ridiculous. But both SGA and Joel Embiid are playing at a high level. So is Jokic. I wouldn't be mad if you argued for any of these guys as your MVP. But I do think that Joel Embiid has been the best player. Um, he's on a great team. I think he is the best player. Um, I think he's, he's having the best season. Um, and when I say best player, I mean for the season. Like, he is the best player this season. He's having the best, the best season. And I think he um, would be my MVP. Now, there were a few guys I wanted to mention. I'm not going to talk about their numbers. But there were some other guys that I think are worth considering in this conversation. You've got guys like Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Jason Tatum. These guys were, like, the best of the rest in terms of betting odds. Um, they are also worth consideration, but I do feel very comfortable having Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, and SGA as the top three candidates for the MVP race. All right, those are my thoughts on the MVP discussion. I uh, hope you all enjoyed this episode of the podcast. That's all I have for y'all today. Um, hit me up on social media at the Ryan McCrary. That's the R-Y-A-N-M-C-C-R-A-R-Y. That's my Twitter and my Instagram handle. But the best place to reach me is on Twitter. But yeah, that's all I have for, for y'all on today's episode. I hope y'all enjoyed it. I know I did. And I will see y'all next time. Peace. <laughs>